I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Katie Engelhart, is a writer and producer based in Toronto and New York, whose recent work has focused on healthcare and bioethics. She has been interviewed on major television networks and produced documentaries for NBC News. Katie has won awards for her magazine stories, including one that documented a months-long investigation into the first COVID outbreak in an American nursing home, with broad implications about the for-profit nursing home industry. She is the author of the book, Inevitable, Dispatches on the Right to Die, published in 2021, which is the subject of today's interview. So Katie, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for having me. Okay, so before I kind of launch in with a kind of description of your wonderful and very thought-provoking book, I just wanted to mention to our listeners that our own radio station, KTAL, has another show called Think Again with Randy Harris, and he hosted 18 interviews on mortality, including two specifically about the right to die and assisted uh, suicide and things of that sort, as well as many other interviews that at least indirectly address that topic. So I just wanted to mention that for our listeners. So the subtitle of, of your book, uh, Dispatches on the Right to Die, means the right to end one's own life, of course. And unlike many writers on this topic, you don't advocate for one side of the debate, but instead present multiple points of view, historical and political background, and the ethical conundrums involved, all brought to life, so to speak, by providing examples of actual people going through the process. One involves degenerative conditions with increasing pain and loss of functioning, another the impending loss of autonomy and control due to dementia, and even a young man with intractable mental illness. Then there are the sub-themes. Assuming we accept the possibility of rational suicide, should the state, police officers, psychiatrists, family, refrain from interfering? Assuming that suicide is a scary thing to do, should it be legal that doctors or right-to-suicide advocates or so-called exit guides facilitate the, and assist the process? To go even further, should such people be permitted to end someone's life for them euthanasia if the person has provided an advanced directive to do so. This scenario would be relevant for Alzheimer's patients whose dementia surpasses the point in which they can successfully end their own lives. You also include the religious dimension. Does creating a right to die violate the sanctity of life? Are socioeconomic factors saving one's children's inheritance valid justification for ending one's life? But before we try to parse all this out, and this is enough for probably more than one interview already, let's hear a bit about what drew you to this really difficult topic and what was the process like to research it? So I started this reporting when I was living in Britain. The British government was debating a law that would legalize assisted dying, so physician-assisted death. Uh, and I was asked by my bosses to do some digging into the subject. I found it to be interesting in some ways, but in a lot of ways, predictable. The two sides, your, your listeners can probably guess already. On the one hand, you had people from what we might call the religious right arguing against assisted dying on religious or moral grounds. You had people arguing that the legalization of physician-assisted death would lead to some slippery slope. And at the end of that, we'd have poor, disabled or older people being forcibly killed by the state. On the other hand, you had um, liberal advocates arguing that we needed assisted dying laws in order to uh, encourage and protect patient autonomy. While I was researching the subject, 
I realized that there was a lot going on behind the scenes, by which I mean away from politics, away from medicine, away from polite conversation. I learned that there were people all over the world, in Britain, in the United States, and beyond, who were making their own plans, who weren't waiting for laws to be passed, who were organizing sometimes within families and and sometimes within much larger underground organizations to facilitate the kinds of deaths that people are looking for. So it seems that there's a big difference between the individual case, which can be very compelling and, and your stories about someone surrounded by their loved ones and it's it's a beautiful death scene as beautiful as such things can be but then you hear about the kind of societal issues about intervention and permission and how doctors should get involved and how it can go awry uh, for instance uh, you hear stories about someone who was approved in terms of the criteria for being allowed to have assisted suicide and it turns out that they lied and the screening wasn't good enough and they actually were depressed. There's a real tension, it seems to me, between the, the general uh, laws and rules versus the individual situation. Well, I would argue that doctors in the United States, maybe we can just limit our conversation for now to the United States, but doctors in the U.S. are already involved in helping patients die. So think about middle-aged patient with breast cancer. She has gone through several rounds of chemotherapy and they haven't really worked, a doctor recommends a third round, that woman might decide in the context of a simple doctor's visit that, no, she's done. She's done trying. She'd rather go home and live out her final months surrounded by her family without receiving treatment. She doesn't need anyone's permission, including her doctor's permission, to decline treatment. And the doctor in the course of that meeting might indeed help this woman debate the pros and cons of continued treatment and agree that death is is a reasonable choice for her. In another context, a doctor might, say, give a patient at the end of his life sedating drugs that speed death along. Now, that might not be the objective of the drugs, but it might be what they do anyway. It might be that these sorts of drugs put a patient to sleep, make him peaceful, but ultimately prevent him from eating and drinking and thus lead to his hastened death. So doctors are already involved in this. We just don't necessarily acknowledge that they are changing the natural course, what we might call the natural course of death. Yeah, so I, I think that most people would say there's a distinction to be made between actively ending somebody's life versus refraining from giving them interventions that would prolong their life. And there's a distinction, or maybe it's a subtle one, but the, the examples that, that you give are really more of the type of, well, how much intervention to do should a person be intubated, for instance. I mean, at the very end of life, you hear horror stories about heroic efforts that are really cruel and, and cause a lot of pain and discomfort and medicalize the whole experience, which seems far inferior to a, a death at home surrounded by loved ones in a comfortable setting. Here's another way of, of drawing the distinction is that... One of them centers the patient. In, in one scenario, the patient is choosing when and how to die. And in the other, 
things are sort of left up to the doctor who's deciding how much medication to give and when to give it. The patient might not even know what's happening. I think it's pretty common for people to witness the deaths of parents or grandparents and walk away just feeling sort of confused. They're not exactly sure what happened and what drugs were administered and when and to what effect um, because they weren't involved in making the choice. So that's another way to, to draw the distinction. And that happens all the time. Now, in the United States, there are you know, a number of states that have legalized physician-assisted death. And in those places, of course. In, including New, New Mexico recently, uh, 2021. Including New Mexico. Yeah. And in those states, of course, patients who meet a very strict set of requirements might be eligible for a doctor's help in ending their lives. Let's parse that out a little bit. You suggested maybe we should stick with the United States, but I think it's actually useful to compare what the range of laws are, because in the United States, and I think in most places, it's a pretty restrictive criteria. I think the last six months of life, I think, and it has to be a terminal illness and and so on and so forth. Um, But there are other countries where it's far more expansive. I would actually say the United States is on the very conservative end of things. So in all the states where assisted death is legal, a patient must, as you say, be terminally ill, judged by several doctors, and there's always a second or sometimes a third opinion required, um, to be within six months of a natural death. The patient must have the capacity to make a choice, so must have the ability to kind of weigh the pros and cons and um, make a reasoned decision. And The patient must be able to physically end his or her life on her own. That usually involves drinking a kind of cocktail of cardiac and respiratory medications. In other countries, the criteria are different. So let's look north to Canada. In Canada, a person doesn't need to be terminally ill in in such a strict sense. A person doesn't need to be within months of a natural death, but rather a person needs to be sick and suffering and getting worse in some progressive way. So that's a more sort of liberal criteria. In other countries, it goes even further. In Belgium, for instance, people with mental illness but not physical illness can qualify. So someone, say, with chronic depression. I can um, relate to that. I mean, I've had um, clients in the past who had intractable depression, not very common. I mean, it's not a common scenario. Most depressions are episodic and remitting. But I have had a couple where it was seen to be, well, one in particular where it was really lifelong from early age, and she was already in her, I think, 60s, and I don't think had a a week without depression. But it's, it's a very uncomfortable position to be in as a psychologist. And I imagine for any therapist or, or doctor, it can be very uncomfortable to be put in the position of having to decide, well, should I stop trying to save this person? It's, it's difficult. Yeah, I think most doctors who I interviewed for, for my book started out feeling uncomfortable and particularly palliative care doctors. So palliative care doctors are are doctors who treat patients at the ends of their lives, who are largely focused on comfort care. And a lot of doctors felt when right-to-die legislation passed that somehow assisted death ran counter to their work. Their work was to create peaceful, painful deaths, to usher patients through the last months of their lives, and assisted death would kind of cut that process short. And it was a 
fundamental challenge to what they were trained to do. Some of the doctors I met continued to refuse to perform assisted deaths, but others changed their mind. And they came to see assisted death as just another tool in palliative care. So just like uh, kind of as one end of the spectrum of palliative care. But certainly doctors are, are trained to prolong life and not to cut it short. And that can be challenging for many doctors. On the other hand, you know, I think it's worth taking a look, taking a close look at the oath that doctors sign when they start their careers. Doctors pledge to do no harm. And I think that historically, that has meant extending life for as long as possible, not doing anything to shorten life. But I think now physicians and certainly patients are reconsidering what exactly harm means. Um, And in some cases, life itself and prolonging it, that can create harm. Yeah, I I loved your quote of uh, Dr. Ira Bayak, the palliative care physician and ethicist. In a 2018 essay he wrote, one of the things our era will be known for is the plague of dying badly, a direct result of modern medicine's original sin, believing that we can vanquish death. That's about as pithy as it gets on this subject. It's a good quote. And interestingly, I mean, my understanding is that Dr. Bayok actually opposes assisted dying legislation in, in most situations. That's common too. There are doctors who, who think that instead of focusing our efforts on ending life, we should work to improve the end of life. But a lot of doctors acknowledge that death right now in the United States is a messy, confusing, ugly, extremely expensive business. Yeah, I, I don't think American culture deals very well with death or grief for that matter. I mean, I remember when 9-11 happens, you know, it was one or two days later, the commentators on the news were talking about healing. Like we didn't even have a chance to absorb the tragedy. And they're already, already talking about healing. Yeah, there's this kind of nationalized death phobia, I think. You know, most people who are 65 and older in the United States have not had a conversation with their doctor about death and dying. Most people don't do end-of-life planning. So I'm talking about wills, advanced directives, do not resuscitate orders if that's desired. And in fact, this is kind of built into the American healthcare system. I mean, it changed recently, but until quite recently, a doctor couldn't be reimbursed for having an end-of-life planning conversation with a patient. And if we know anything about the American healthcare system, it's that if there's no billing code for something, it's not going to happen. So that was really fundamentally built into the system. And I think that results in a kind of passivity that, you know, a patient kind of drifts from treatment to treatment, a family kind of agrees to treatment and to more treatment without anyone actually sitting down and figuring out what the person wants and and how to make sure that her plan is honored. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is that there's, for people who are willing to look at this kind of subject, uh, there's a desire for control. And that the the biggest thing that drives people to want to die uh, before a natural death is the loss of control and, and the loss of dignity that comes with the loss of control. Even things as seemingly trivial as being able to clean themselves after they toilet, you know, that uh, the, the lack of control, even more than, than pain, I think you point out in your book that it's really fear of future pain more than the present pain that drives the decision. But even more than that, the loss of dignity and the loss of control. 
Yeah, when I started researching the subject, I assumed that people who applied for assisted death in the United States would be motivated by pain. So they had some condition that was causing them terrible pain and they wanted it to end. There's not great data in a lot of places, but Oregon, for example, has been collecting data for quite a long time on assisted dying patients. And according to that research, we know that pain is not really what drives patients at all. Patients are more motivated by a fear of losing autonomy, by a fear of losing the ability to do activities that bring them pleasure or joy, and by a fear of dependency. A lot of people that I interviewed said specifically that they wanted to die when they lost the ability to use a bathroom on their own. And that can sound sort of crude, but I think it's probably speaking to a broader fear about the loss of independence. Um, now, you might have opponents say, well, uh, isn't that tragic on its own? Shouldn't we work to reconfigure society such that people aren't embarrassed or ashamed at the ends of their lives to require that kind of intimate care? And I mean, of course, I think that's desirable. But in the meantime, I think people have a lot of fear and they want to avoid the kinds of deaths that they've seen um, their parents or grandparents go through that have resulted in, in quite a noted loss of control. Yeah, I, I was glad to see that, that you uh, mentioned uh, the, uh, Sherwin Newland's book, How We Die. And he, he talks about the good death as being kind of a myth that, you know, p- people who are lucky have a, have a so-called good death, but it's very com- probably more common not to. And that's, I think, one of the, the myths that Americans in particular hold on to, you know, that death ought to be beautiful somehow and this magical moment of parting into the next world. And very often it's, it's ugly and there's no control, and particularly if it's at a hospital. So I, I think that's, that's important. Yeah, I wanted to talk also about dementia. Uh, you mentioned in your book that no American state has seriously considered the idea of extending aid and dying to dementia patients and no major American lobbying group is advocating for it. So I think that's a really important point because that seems to me like one of the kind of obvious times when you might want assistance. I, for one, I mean, I would be horrified to think of myself going into advanced dementia and being a terrible burden on people, having no quality of life and no awareness and not, not being able to recognize my own children. That would be awful. And yet that's a kind of a taboo subject, maybe because it's so messy. Uh, one of the things you point out in your book is that some people might like to have an advanced directive that someone should kill them, which would be euthanasia rather than assisted suicide, when their dementia has got, gone past a certain limit. But uh, American law would call that murder. My suspicion is if we pulled people, a lot of people would want such a law to exist. But sure, I mean, the, the major lobby groups in the United States are very conservative in their approach. They have basically replicated the Oregon law from the 90s over and over in different places with very minor variations. And I think those lobbyists feel like even if they're personally sympathetic to an expanded kind of right to die, um, they believe that if they advocate for that in one place, it will just encourage opponents in other states to say, hey, look, look what's happening. The laws are expanding just like we said they would. And soon no one will be safe. Slippery slope argument. Yeah, the slippery slope. But um, there are places where this is legal and it's very, very difficult. It poses a kind of enormous philosophical challenge to doctors and to the state. So you can look at a place 
like Belgium, for instance. In Belgium, someone who has been diagnosed with dementia can qualify for the right to die. The trick is that he has to be capable of consenting to death at the time that he dies. So what does this mean practically? It means that he probably has to be pretty early on in the disease course. Someone with mild or mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, say, who can still reason through things and explain explain a choice. So that can and does happen in Belgium. Now, the Netherlands offers this other kind of assisted dying for dementia. Someone who is diagnosed with dementia can write an advanced directive. I want my life to be taken when I reach this point. And this point can be when I don't recognize my children, when I can't take care of myself, when I lose the ability to speak, you know, that can be tailored and that's legal too. But here's the problem. Doctors don't like doing it. And you can understand why in the Netherlands, doctors are being asked in some cases to end the life of a person who has no idea what's going on who might, you know, from day to day appear pretty happy, um, you know, watching TV or playing bingo or whatever it is, who has no idea that he or she is scheduled to die. And that's an enormous thing to ask of doctors. But on the other hand, doctors who refuse to do it in the Netherlands are criticized for not respecting the, you know, authentic wishes of their patients. So this is very challenging. I don't think there is an easy answer to it, but I do think that most of the people I interviewed feared Alzheimer's disease, for instance, more than death itself. Yeah, this isn't exactly about dementia, but I'm, I'm reminded of this scene in One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, where the Jack Nicholson character has been lobotomized and has no personality left at all, and, and the other main character smothers him with a pillow and puts him out of his not misery, but out of his meaninglessness in a way. And, and I think the way the movie is designed, it's, it's designed, I think, to evoke sympathy for the, the person who ended the, the character's life, which is really interesting. You know, and there's also a bunch of other media examples which you didn't have in your, in your book. Um, one of them is um, Harold and Maude, the uh, kind of cult classic movie from the 80s of the... Um, romance between a 20-year-old man and an 80-year-old woman who meet because they both like to crash funerals. And they strike up a romance, and this, this is a spoiler alert, but uh, she decides that she wants to end her life at 80. She doesn't tell him. But, you know, she lived a full life and the way she wanted it to be. And, you know, it's, again, the movie sort of is a little bit sympathetic, I think, to that notion that, well, you know, she, she took control of her own ending. Yeah. I have met a number of older adults who wish for the same thing. They weren't sick with anything in particular, but they had that kind of constellation of symptoms that are typical of advanced age issues with hearing and balance and, you know, maybe some incontinence, maybe some, some pain, this kind of collection of smaller ailments and conditions that to them made life unbearable or not wish not worth living and some of these people advocate for assisted dying legislation that would allow a person above a certain age threshold to choose death rather than continue life in in an older body and again this is difficult 
But there's a movement for it, particularly in Britain. I've seen a lot of advocates of what, what they call old age rational suicide. There's kind of a small organization of like-minded people who are, um, I think, probably in a very futile way, pushing the British government to recognize this desire. Martin Amis, the novelist, got into trouble in Britain a long time ago, maybe a decade ago, for, uh, I think, somewhat jokingly arguing that um, Britain should you know, turn telephone booths into suicide booths where older people would get kind of a medal and a martini for choosing to end their lives. I mean, that's a kind of maybe insensitive way of talking about this subject, but, but I think it's acknowledging a truth, which is that people are sometimes living longer than they want to be living. You know, I think in raising that, it, it suggests also the other issue, which is that even if you give a, a person the right to control their own death, what about the people who are left behind? Do they get any say over it? And in a, in a liberal um, democratic view, you'd say, well, of course, people should have ultimate autonomy. But then on the more conservative side, do other people get a chance to weigh in. And But yeah, that's not how we live our lives at all, right? Going back to my example of a woman with breast cancer who decides to stop treatment. I mean, her husband doesn't get to weigh in. Her children don't get to weigh in. She'll probably consider them. But they don't get to choose, just like we don't get to choose the profession or the housing situation of our, our relatives. It's just not how we do anything else. So the idea that for some reason families should be able to weigh in about this particular choice seems um, seems odd to me. But we do weigh in when it ha comes to non-rational suicide or irrational suicide. Uh, we're, I think, obligated as a society to try to prevent people from taking their lives in a uh, impulsive moment, which is which is a quite a common form of suicide. It's not always someone who's uh, unremittingly depressed. It could be a young person who had a painful breakup, for instance. Uh, there, there, there was a really interesting um, article in the New York Times Magazine. I think it was in the eighties. Uh, a, a bioethicist who dealt with with end of life issues. Uh, her husband had a terrible bicycle accident where he flew over the handlebars and broke his neck. He became a quadriplegic and he wanted to die. He felt his life is over. And here she was, a bioethicist who was an advocate for right to die legislation. And she wouldn't let him, <laughs> or she argued against it. And it turned out that he was an English teacher, English professor, and he started having his students uh, come to the house for, for the class. And he wanted to live again. And every once in a while, he would want to die again. You know, he would go back and forth. And she recognized how incredibly complicated it is even in a situation where a person has lost tremendous autonomy. I believe that article was about Professor Margaret Batten, who is still a very, very firm advocate for assisted dying legislation. Um, it is difficult. Look, most suicides are what we might call despair suicides, which is, you know, suicides that take place because of mental illness or because of kind of temporary impulse. And I agree, as a society, we have an obligation to to save people in that instance. But I think what we can call rational suicide is different. And in fact, this is why advocates of assisted dying are so opposed to the phrase assisted suicide. I mean, they really, they don't see it as suicide. They see these things as completely different and they've worked very hard to separate their cause um, from suicide suicide. 
so, you know, I think, in fact, the weight that despair suicide holds in people's imaginations does hold back the assisted dying cause. It's hard for us to imagine that someone would want to end his life for rational, quote unquote, rational reasons. Although, as you point out in, in your book, there were other eras and cultures where it was much more accepted in ancient Greece, for instance. And then there were cultures, I mean, supposedly um, Inuit in, in Alaska would put their elderly on, on an ice floe when they were no longer able to contribute. I, I've since read that that was extremely rare, and the last documented case of that was in 1939, I think. But, but it also raises the question, in a situation of scarcity, and a person can't contribute and, and also is very weighed down by that fact, you know, does that change the, the calculus? Well, I will say in the United States, in all states where this is legal, there are safeguards. And in the United States, the safeguards have held firm. Several doctors have to approve each patient, and those doctors have to agree that the patient is, is within six months of a natural death. So someone who's just kind of old but okay and doesn't want to be a burden, that person's not going to qualify. That said, you know, I think some coverage of assisted dying glosses over this issue. When I read newspaper articles about assisted death, I see an elderly person who's a kind of upstanding citizen and surrounded by love and family and who's making this choice solely because he or she has cancer or heart disease or, or whatever it is that's become terminal. In real life, things are messier. People are motivated by all sorts of things and money or fear of being a drain can be one of them. Is that bad? <laughs> I mean, that's worth unpacking. I think most of your listeners, are impulse would be, yes, it's bad. We shouldn't have people in society who choose to die early because they're motivated by financial distress. But we're not doing anything to fix their financial distress in a lot of situations. We shouldn't have nursing homes that are so awful that it's like the worst place to be. And mm -hmm. you know, there are families that can't take care of somebody and the person has to be in, in a nursing home and it's going to drain all the resources plus give an awful end of life. Yeah, basically the, the way end-of-life care works for a, an awful lot of families in the United States is grandma has a fall at home, she is moved into a nursing home, the cost is $9,000 a month, which her family will pay for a year until they, uh, you know, she is completely drained of savings, at which point she'll finally qualify for Medicaid, and then she'll be moved into a double or triple room where she will live out the rest of her days after having spent all the money that she worked decades to earn for her family. So we should fix that. But in the meantime, I think it's natural that people would be motivated by, for instance, fear of avoiding, a fear of that situation. Let's talk a little bit about the effect of, of the laws that have been passed in the United States, which I, I think is starting with Oregon, and there are what, uh, more than a dozen, I think, states now. Uh, I think there was a big fear that it would it would lead to the slippery slope and uh, there'd be increasing numbers. And it sounds like that's not true at all. Yeah. In all the states where this is legal, numbers have remained very small. I think they've grown a little bit in Oregon, but we're still talking about a very small sliver of the population that wants this, pursues it, has the resources to get it. And the criteria has remained very rigid. There have been small tweaks to the law. For instance, some states have reduced the number, uh, sort of the duration of the waiting period 
when someone says they want this, they have to wait a certain number of days before they can end their life. Some states have changed the waiting period, but the fundamental criteria have not changed at all. And I think that's the work of advocates in the United States. In other countries, more limited laws have passed and then been expanded later. Yeah, and I think you point out that um, you know not only have the numbers of, of assisted suicides not increased, but also there was a fear that it, this would be used to kind of get rid of poor people. And in fact, the people who've had more access are people who have the means. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of, of what people feared. Yeah, I think that's true. I read the book Being Mortal by Dr. Atul Gawande, for instance, and he was talking about the Netherlands where assisted dying is a lot more common. And he pointed out that about 4% of deaths in the Netherlands are now the result of assisted death. He thought that number seemed high, but I think we can ask why it seems high. What is the correct number? You know, if if it turned out to be that 50% of people in Oregon end their life with assisted death, why would that be too much? I don't think there's a threshold number. I think, again, I think only a small number of people are actually going to want this, but but I don't think there's a right number. Yeah, I think his other criticism, though, of the Netherlands was that they've become more advanced on assisted suicide than they were with palliative care. And so he felt that that balance was off and and that troubled him. Yeah. I mean, I think probably a a lot of European countries that either have assisted death or um, are considering it have quite advanced palliative care probably compared to the United States. I mean, and that's a criticism of assisted dying as it exists in the United States. In other countries where it is legal, there are national health care systems. So people are guaranteed the right to health care before they are offered access to assisted death. That's not true in the United States. Most people who choose assisted death are insured, but there is the possibility that people who don't have adequate access to health care will choose, will choose this. Part of your book focuses on on end-of-life activists and celebrities, and particularly uh, Jack Kevorkian and Philip Nitschke. Those are interesting chapters because, on the one hand, these are kind of heroic men that are advocating for something in such a forceful way that other people, in a way that other people aren't. On the other hand, they seem very much into the celebrity status and the notoriety. And I'm wondering if, you know, how, to what extent does the notoriety detract from their advocacy in a sense, because it seems like it's really about them more than about the issue. I think the most visible advocates of a movement aren't necessarily people who speak to the core of a movement. I think that's true in a lot of different situations. Kevorkian, did he help or hinder the cause? I think that's complicated. Kevorkian was a strange man. He had had kind of a middling or maybe even unsuccessful medical career. I mean, he painted with his own blood. He was an odd person. And ultimately, he was someone who who committed euthanasia, who took a patient's life against the law. But on the other hand, you know his name. (laughs) And a lot of people know his name. So I think he brought the issue to the fore. Was he a perfect spokesperson for the cause? Definitely not. And definitely advocates today would have nothing to do with Kevorkian and don't want to be linked to his to his legacy at all. But he did bring the issue to national attention. I mean, Kevorkian, he used to end patients' lives or help patients to end their lives in the back of a beat-up 
Volkswagen van. And then, you know, he'd be spotted sometimes basically pushing a corpse on a wheelchair through a hospital parking lot. I mean, he really made people look at this issue head on. This is a quote from your book about critics of Philip Nietzsche, who's, I guess, the Australian equivalent of Jack of Orkin. He writes, or you write about him, I'm not sure if you're quoting somebody or if, if these are your words. Uh, these critics found all the excesses of neoliberalism, radical individualism, a sanctified solipsism, a swollen sense of self, an obsession with personal narrative carried to a hideous conclusion, a world stripped of existential meaning in which each individual is bound only by his own preferences and so should take his life whenever he sees fit, forgetting family and friends, forgetting obligation. In Philip's formulation, loved ones who resisted a death wish were selfish and greedy. In the stories he told, suicide was stripped of its melodrama and horror. Exiting was quick and clean. To others, Philip's logic wasn't dangerous so much as it was incoherent. In his workshops, he emphasized that control at the end of life mattered more than anything. But how could the point of life be to control it? Yeah, those are my words. I'm more eloquent in writing, I guess. Yeah, and I compliment you for including things like that, because, you know, clearly from our conversation and from the book, you, you come down on, on the side of wanting people to have the right, but you also are very aware of the other side of, of the argument, and you present it really cogently. Mm. Well, I mean, I think my objective was to kind of bring readers along the ethical journey as as I went through it. And I think I remain uncertain on a lot of points. I mean, Philip Nitschke, yes, he's a doctor in Australia. He performed the first legal physician-assisted death in Australia. And he continues to be, you know, a leading advocate. He has gone through his own journey, which I write about. He went from thinking doctors should be in control of the process of assisted dying, that doctors should have eligibility criteria, which they monitor and police. He then sort of changed his mind and thought the criteria should be expanded beyond terminal illness. And now he's all the way at the other end of the spectrum where he thinks not only should there be no eligibility criteria, because only a person can decide whether life is worth living, but that doctors shouldn't be uh, in control at all. And, you know, that's that's kind of an extreme argument. However, it's one that I've heard from kind of different parts of society. Assisted death is not rocket science. Um, it doesn't require a huge amount of training to prescribe someone medication. And so there are people, even within more mainstream circles, who argue that maybe this could somehow be taken out of the hands of doctors and put into the hands of I don't know, social workers, death doulas, some new profession and end-of-life planners, people who are maybe more thoughtful about or experienced with these broader philosophical questions about what makes life worth living. Right. So the, the assisted dying could be taken out of the hands of the doctors, but the doctors still have to be involved to sign off as the law stands, that the person really is either terminal or intractable or degenerative, whatever have you. So it seems like it's pretty impossible to remove doctors entirely. And also the rational part of it, you'd need to have uh, some kind of therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist affirming that the person is doing this of their own free will and, and knowingly knowing what they're doing. Well, you, you actually don't. In most situations, you don't need a psychologist to assess a patient. The doctors would just judge 
in, in conversation whether or not the patient is capable of making the choice. It's only if the case is complicated, for instance, if the patient, you know, say has terminal cancer and has a long history of depression that a doctor can and might choose to consult with a psychologist or psychiatrist. Well, that's, that's a little dis- disturbing to me as a psychologist, <laughs> to cut out of it. I'm not that I want to be in that role whatsoever, but yeah. uh, I think deciding whether a person's depression is rational, is, you know, the person is still r- rational despite having d- depression about their end-of-life situation is really tricky. Here's the thing. Mental illness is involved in a lot of these cases anyway. Um, because a lot of people have mental illness. A lot of people experience depression or generalized anxiety at some point in their life, for instance, and then those people go on to get cancer or heart disease or whatever it is. So it's involved in some way in a, in a lot of these cases. Now, it's probably not possible to really tease apart in any individual this part of the decision is motivated by the cancer and this part is motivated by the depression. I mean, it's all coming from the same person in the same mind. Um, so it's difficult to tease out. But again, it's complicated. And I do think that a lot of coverage of assisted dying and a lot of the advocacy around assisted dying overlooks this complication. People have a lot going on in their own lives. People are motivated by a lot of different things. You know, I heard a case, for instance, when I was reporting on my book, about a woman with cancer. So she uh, she was terminally ill and she had cancer, so she did qualify to die under the law in California. And her question was when to do it. And part of her thinking was her life had become very expensive. And so the longer she lived, the less money she would have to leave her daughter. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, it didn't change her eligibility criteria, but it was influencing her decision-making about when she wanted to die. And we could say, that's just awful. That shouldn't be allowed or um, it shouldn't happen that someone should feel that motivation. But it's also reality. Um, And a lot of parents want really more than anything to provide for their children when they die. I think it's completely understandable that this woman would factor that into her decision-making. I can't say what ultimately decided things for her, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that not only is it complicated, but it's really impossible to decide in a reliable scientific way on, on these issues. I mean, it's, it, we're talking about values and ethics and judgment and something like the concept of suffering. There's no way to measure uh, suffering. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think I think that's very challenging. So right now we have the law based on diagnosis on disorder, but that's not the only way to do it. In Canada, the law is much more flexible and is much more about a person's subjective experience of suffering or understanding of suffering. A person doesn't need to be imminently dying. A person just needs to be suffering a lot. It reminds me of the the difficulties with the standard pain scale on a scale from one to 10, how much pain are you in? I mean, how, how is it possible to know that one person's aid is another person's aid? It's, it's, it isn't. Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the problems we have with current data is that we, the American healthcare system, when it comes to assisted dying, doesn't really capture patient experiences very well. Um, doctors are required to submit a certain amount of paperwork, and in some cases they're required to check boxes. Why did their patient choose assisted death? 
but that's coming from a doctor. Maybe it's based on an interview, but maybe it's just a doctor's kind of impression of why a patient is choosing something. It's not coming from the patient. For instance, in Oregon, the data would say patients aren't really motivated by money. Maybe that's true. People who choose assisted death tend to be relatively well off economically. But maybe it's also because people don't really talk to their doctors about money. So how would the doctors have any idea what the patient's thinking about financially? I would be interested to see more more information coming from patients themselves. But then again, I think the laws recognize that patients at the ends of their lives aren't necessarily capable of filling out a lot of paperwork, nor should they be made to. I wonder if we could shift gears just slightly and talk more about the mental health aspect and mental health as a uh, criteria for being allowed to die. And you, you have a long chapter uh, of, about a man named Adam who has intractable mental illness, but he's only in his 20s. And I think most of the doctors who he told he, he, that he planned to die at some point were horrified you know, that someone so young with so much potential should make that kind of decision. Uh, I also want to, um, not a quote from you, but just a reference to your book. There, there was uh, someone named Brian, I don't remember his last name, that he, he worked as an exit guide, but he also volunteered at a suicide prevention hotline trying to keep strangers alive for a few more hours until the crisis passed and, and usually they would realize that they didn't want to die. So that's really fascinating that the same person would do both. But it, it does seem to me really difficult, uh, you know, speaking of conundrums and complications, you know, to tease that out. I mean, even if somebody, let's say, is 50 and claims that they've always been depressed, well, that first of all, that's not often reliable. Uh, people, people are depressed tend to, it tends to color their perception of their past as well. They may, may have more, in it, more of an intimate depression than they even realize. And the other is that mental health is, it's really hard to say that something is hopeless, even if a p- person feels that way. It's really hard to determine that. And the, the, the person that you talk about, Adam, I mean, he, he became kind of his own publicity, source of publicity about these things and had a following, I think, on the internet. Yeah. The case of mental illness is really complicated because, as you say, I think we have the sense that the mental illness itself is clouding or corrupting the person's ability to reason, and thus they can't reason their way to a choice to die. That may be true. On the other hand, you know, people with very serious mental illnesses are able to choose lots of things in their life, like where to live and what to do we assume that people are capable to do things until they show us otherwise. Um, I think I spoke with a lot of psychiatrists who think if we allow assisted death for people with mental illness, this will basically mean that doctors are collaborating in the suicidal ideations of their patients and that this would be very, very dangerous. It's it's not just uh, the question about assisting. It's also the question of preventing, you know, should therapists or policemen or doctors at times say, well, I'm not going to intervene this time because I think this person really wants to die. And that, that alone is, is, I think, very problematic. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, I spent a lot of time with a psychiatrist in Toronto who argues that psychiatrists tend to refuse to give up. You know, they have patients who have been suffering for a long time, who have tried a lot of different things, different medications, different kinds of therapies, and not had measurable results. And that it might be appropriate for psychiatrists to, in some cases, admit defeat and help a patient end suffering if, if that's 
their choice. I think in when it comes to mental illness, we tend to expect and demand for patients to try everything. You know, if there's another kind of therapy out there, we want someone to try it. And that makes sense, but we don't apply the same logic to physical illness. We don't force someone to get surgery that might work. We don't force someone to do chemotherapy or radiation if that person doesn't want it. A person can decide that enough is enough. Is mental illness just so different from physical illness that we can't apply the same logic? Or is it close enough? I mean, I think that's probably a matter of opinion, but there are places where it's legal and it's very challenging. I spent a few weeks in Belgium um, in part with a group of women around my age, (laughs) some of whom had been approved for assisted death. And, And one of the women I met, she was in her early 30s. She She did end up dying with the help of her doctor. That was a very tricky case. I mean, was she so young that she couldn't possibly have tried everything that might have helped her? Or was she old enough to to decide to give up? Yeah, that's a very tricky question, especially because mental illness is not something that can be seen anywhere in, in terms of data. I mean, there's no brain scan. There's no genetic tests that can show that the person has that issue. I mean, it's it's not as as demonstrable as, let's say, cancer or quadriplegia or dementia. I mean, you know, those things are demonstrably physical, and you know that, that they they call for physical intervention. You know, that may not exist yet. But with mental health, we're not even sure what we're dealing with yet. I mean, it's a really primitive. Uh, it's in a primitive state. Uh, this the science of it. I think it's very hard to puzzle through. We do have mental health advocates, though, who have argued, I think successfully over the last few decades, that mental illness is real, that it can be just as serious as physical illness. That begs the question, should we really say, yes, mental illness is real and just as bad as physical illness, except when it comes to the right to die, and then it's kind of not real or not as serious or not as provable and and you shouldn't qualify? Yeah, I I didn't mean to say that it's not real, but I think the... um making the argument that something is intractable is really hard to make except by the person's own report. I wonder in these cases in Belgium where people who are chronically depressed are given assisted suicide, to what extent did they interview the family to find out whether the person's perceptions are accurate or not? Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the doctor. Um, In the case that I wrote about, this woman that I just referenced, her mother was ultimately supportive because she kind of saw that I was helpless. And I think she thought her daughter would end her life on her own if she weren't given a doctor's help. That doesn't mean that that's not necessarily like a reason for the doctor to help. But I think that was the mother's perspective. But but yes, as you say, it's really it's really hard. The, the psychiatrist I, I mentioned in Toronto, her theory is that people with mental illness should qualify but they should have had to try a certain number of things, um, maybe a certain number of therapies and a certain number of medications, but that after that point, a patient could say that enough was enough and have a doctor respect it. Yeah, and that kind of makes me sad to, to think about that. Those are the only options because you know the level of, of treatment, uh, which is often, I think, uh, overly... Um, associated with the medical model, which uh, as a psychologist, I don't 
uh, ascribed to as, as being the uh, be-all and, and, and all of uh, explanations for, for mental illness, that interventions for, for depression or anxiety would need to include things that are outside the medical profession altogether. I mean, new experiences, new relationships, new involvements, things of that sort. Um, I think it's really, I think, a mistake to think that uh, somehow we have a scientific basis for intervening and we should try all the options because that's the way it's defined, you know, that intervention is defined medically. And I, 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 have, I have problems with that. Even the kinds of therapy within the medical model are not accessible to most people. So again, I think I had a really memorable meeting with this doctor in Belgium. He's kind of famous in the country for being an advocate of assisted dying and euthanasia. And he's involved in a lot of the assisted deaths in the country, either as a primary doctor or as a second opinion doctor. And I asked him what he thought about assisted dying legislation in the United States. And he, like, physically recoiled from me. And he said, absolutely not. I mean, it just he said it shouldn't exist in the United States. The United States is not an advanced modern country when it comes to health. He called it a developing country. <laughs> Yeah, he said it was a developing country when it comes to health care and that you can't have assisted dying in a developing country. You need health care. You need the right to health care before you offer the right to death. As well as maybe more openness culturally to even talking about death in the first place. So we're almost out of time. I just wanted to mention a couple of more things from your book that have well-known people who've uh, changed their minds about this. You know, Governor Jerry Brown, you mentioned, uh, was a former Jesuit seminary student and he had publicly struggled over whether the legislation for assisted uh, dying was sinful before being persuaded by, among other things, by the writings of South African Archbishop and Nobel Peace uh, Laureate Desmond Tutu, who announced on his 85th birthday that he wanted the option himself of assisted death. So that's, that's really interesting to hear about such prominent people with that kind of religious background changing their minds. Yeah, I think people who become acquainted with the kinds of patients who choose this in the United States sometimes come around. I mean, I opened my book with um, a man named Bradshaw Perkins Jr., who was in his late 80s in California. I was with him while he died. And, you know, he was he was a straightforward case. He was terminally ill. He had cancer. He was probably, his doctor thought, a few weeks from a quote-unquote natural death. Um, he decided he didn't want those kind of final hours to be in and out of consciousness, on sedating drugs, you know, maybe not aware of his surroundings. He wanted to end while he was still with it. And he had, I mean, what we could call a beautiful death. His three adult children took time off work. They all flew into California for the death. They were all physically in his bed holding him when he died. Um, the man knew when he was going to die, so he was able to say his chosen final words. His last words were something to his daughter. I think he said, you're, you're the sweetest girl I ever knew, something like that. And it was lovely. And I think that's mostly what we're talking about when we talk about assisted dying in the U.S. Good. Well, I, I think that's a good place to end because it really points to the, I think, this strongest evidence to, to back up the case is these individual stories, which you know, sounds really so compelling. Anyway, Katie uh, Engelhart, uh, writer and producer based in Toronto and New York, who's written Inevitable Dispatches on the Right to Die, published in 2021. So thank you so much for coming out to Delving, and this is really a thought-provoking conversation. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.